And you guys can grab a seat really quickly. Actually, a, a lot longer than really quickly. We'll be sitting for a little bit. Um, if you want to go ahead and grab your Bibles and be flipping over to Luke, that's right, we'll be in Luke uh, chapter 9. Um, be in verses 46 through 56 in our time together this morning. Uh, as always, if you don't hi- have a Bible, go ahead and snag one of the white paperback Bibles on the table in front of you. Uh, we want you to see that this is God's Word. So if you are feeling any bit of uh, maybe conviction from the Word this morning, or maybe um, you, know, you feel like maybe I'm talking directly to you, the beauty of it is that this is the Word of God. It's inspired. That's not coming from me. It's, it's coming from God. Um, so we just want you to be able to see that with your own eyes. Um, before we dive into the text, I think it's really important that we kind of catch up to see where we have been in this sermon series called A Meal with Jesus. Uh, so if you've been with us, or if you haven't, I think it's really important that we remember why we're even in this sermon series to begin with. Uh, that whole reason is to know more about who Jesus is who he is. So right when we started with this whole series, um, we started back in October of last year intentionally walking verse by verse sometimes through the Gospel of Luke, so that way we get a better picture of who we know that Jesus is. Um, When we first started formulating this idea of the series, um, we were reading this book called A Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester, and there was this really cool quote in there that from a guy named something Karras, uh, Robert Karras, and he was talking about how in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either at a mill, going to a mill, or coming from a mill. And we love that because in in that story, Jesus is rubbing shoulders with Christians and non-Christians alike. These people are getting able to see Jesus for who he is in the everyday context of life. They're sinners, Pharisees, tax collectors, and that's beautiful. And that's what we're hoping to accomplish in this series in a meal with Jesus is to see more of who Jesus really is. So um, let's dig into the text. We're going to hopefully over the next 30 to 35 minutes, just read these 11 verses, uh, find out a little bit about who God is, who we are, and and what we're going to do in light of that. So um, let's dig into the text. We'll pray, and then we'll jump in. So picking up in verse 46. Now, an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest, them being the disciples. But Jesus, knowing that they, what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. John answered and said, Master, we have someone casting out demons in your name, and he tried to prevent them because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. Verse 51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent his messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That escalated quickly. But he turned and rebuked and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for allowing us to gather as your church this morning. Um, we're grateful that we can come into this place uh, and to sit under your teaching. 
that we might in turn glorify you as we see from the disciples here um, what the struggle and temptations they were facing. Uh, I just ask Holy Spirit that you would convict us uh, if we were falling into the same temptations and that you would more than that show us how to step out of that all for your glory, Jesus. Uh, We just want to come into your presence and sit and be nourished by you uh, just to praise you for who you are uh, and for not just for the things that you do for us, but just that you are a good God and that you love us and you meet us exactly where we are. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So big question. How, how is this even possible? How is this argument even something that is happening, right? That these are the 12 disciples, that these are the hand-picked dudes that Jesus said, I'm going to do my ministry through, right? How is this even happening? Why are they even arguing that's the greatest? Like, who is the greatest among them? Shouldn't they already just have that Sunday school answer in the back? Jesus is the greatest. God is the greatest. Well, I think for us to understand why they're actually arguing, it'd be really important for us to take a look back at some of the things that have happened in the text over the past couple weeks that we've learned about so we give a little bit more framework as to why they're arguing. So if you guys remember about three weeks ago, Gabe taught on the transfiguration, how Jesus went up on the mountaintop, was transfigured into all of his glory, and Moses and Elijah were there. But think about that for the 12 disciples, right? He only took Peter, James, and John. So it's like Jesus standing there in front of the 12 disciples, and he's like, uh, all right, give me Peter, give me James, and John. The rest of you hit the showers. It's like the, it's like the other nine had to feel like the JV squad at that point, right? There had to be some insecurity welling up in them, and there had to be a bit of pride welling up in Peter, James, and John that they got to go to the mountaintop, that they got to see Moses and Elijah, that they got to freak out, like Gabe was saying, in the middle of the night trying to build tents from sticks, like not even know what's going on, right? So it's when they come down off the mountaintop, Jesus also strictly tells them not to tell anyone. So that's probably including the other nine disciples, right? So if you guys have ever been on a trip, what's the first question someone asks you when you get back? How was your trip, right? So Peter, James, and John was probably like, oh, oh man, uh, we can't really say what's going on. Uh, it was good, you know, we hung out with Jesus. You know, we saw Moses and Elijah. Like, what? Like, you saw Moses and Elijah? So this insecurity is welling up in the other nine as well. But, like, it's also important to note what we learned last week when Ricky was teaching what the other nine disciples were doing while they were on the mountain. The other nine disciples were trying to cast a demon out of a boy. So nine disciples couldn't even cast out one demon out of this boy, and these other guys got to see Moses and Elijah. And to add salt to the wound that... We see in verse 49, what we just read earlier, that some dude who isn't even following alongside of them was casting out demons. So we start to see this this rub between the disciples and Jesus. Uh, Jesus is not trying to create this whatsoever, but the disciples are feeling this. So I think it's important we understand why this argument breaks out. Uh, I love Mark 9. It gives, it's the same account. It just gives a little bit more detail about how Jesus sees the disciples lagging back and they're talking about what's going on. And he even looks back to him and says, hey guys, what were you talking about? And the, the disciples like plead the fifth. They're just quiet. They're like, that's something I should have learned when I was young, right? Like, see the boys here, you're laughing. That's the laugh of truth, right? That my parents, like whenever I did something to get in trouble, they always knew, but they were sneaky about it, right? So they would come to me and put me on the spot. They're like, hey, Kyle, um, is there something you want to tell us? And I'm like, oh, crap. Um, so in my mind, I'm trying to go through the list of hierarchy of all the stuff that I have done. Like, what's the least worst thing I can tell them? So I'm like, uh, 
I failed my spelling test. And they're like, you failed your spelling test. I'm like, oh man, I'm telling on myself at this point. But it's a funny story, but like the disciples didn't have the benefit of like not speaking and not, you know, incriminating themselves. Jesus, we just read here in verse uh, 47 that he knew their heart, right? So that's a bad thing for them, but it's also a really good thing for them because Jesus is compassionate that he is not condemning them, beating them over the head for the fact that they're in this argument of who the greatest. He's not saying, of course I'm the greatest. Why are you guys even arguing? What he sees is that there is a fruit issue of this argument, but behind that is a real root issue of pride. And of course the disciples are going to be prideful, right? Like, they want to be the best. You see, even Peter, James, and John just came off the mountaintop with Moses and Elijah, right? Some of the biggest names in Hebrew history— And Moses and Elijah, they had tons of followers and tons of people around them, but they always had this right-hand kind of guy. Moses had Aaron, and Elijah had Elisha. So, but Jesus is compassionate and feels compassion for them. We see in verse 47, he says, but knowing what they were thinking in their hearts, he took a child and stood him by his side. He's compassionate. These, you know, not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? Right? We're still a culture that's obsessed with becoming the greatest. That's, I mean, I don't have to argue long with you on that point. There's a reason why there's so many books out there of self-help books that become the best version of you, how to climb the corporate ladder. There's a reason why there's a top 100 on the Forbes list. There's a reason why these, all these arguments of best movie ever, worst movies ever, Rotten Tomatoes, all these things, like we're seeing it right now. The NBA finals are going on. There's this argument debate, who's the GOAT, right? Who's the greatest of all time? Is it LeBron James or is it Michael Jordan? Like, stop with that mess. It's not even an argument. Of course Michael Jordan is the best. Like, it's not even a thing. But the truth is that we do this in our own lives as well. Whether we don't have to look at society to tell us to be the best, we still, whether we verbally tell other people or not, we're still trying to become the best at something, right? Whether it's the best parent, the best communicator, from my case, I learned that this week about myself. Whether we're trying to become the best student and best grandparent. We're trying to become the best at something, But hear me, church, I'm not saying that it is wrong to try to be great at something. I'm not saying that greatness is not something that we should pursue. Please pursue that. Please go after that with all of your strength. But what I'm saying is there is a huge difference between pursuing greatness and trying to be the greatest. Does that make sense? The difference there is pride, right? As a Christian, of course we strive for greatness, to be the best of everything we can for the glory of God. That is the main difference. And Jesus saw that, and he understood that with the disciples, but he didn't hold it against them, right? So Jesus does something here that the disciples miss, that if we're not careful, that we'll miss as well. This is the main crux of everything we're talking about. There's this argument, the disciples, of being the greatest, and Jesus does something that's amazing, he redefines the win for them. Did you guys catch that? So in, in verse 48, when he said, and he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you is the one who is great. So what's kind of going on here? Jesus brings up this little boy and sets him beside him. And I think, again, Mark 9 just gives a little bit more detail how it talks about not only did he sit him beside him, but he took this little boy into his arms and not only taught them, the disciples, about this little boy and what they should be doing, but showed them of how to do that. So you're asking, what's going on here? In that culture, 
children were no good for anything besides like manual labor. You had more kids so that way you could work more land and you would have more workers for your crop and for, you would have more people to help you. Especially like most scholars agree that this boy is probably under the age of 12. If you're under the age of 12, you were never taught even the Torah. So what is Jesus trying to say to the disciples here? What he's trying to say, the greatest follower of mine, the greatest follower of mine cares for the least of these in society. The people that society looks at as the least valuable, you look at and you serve them well. Not only do you serve them well, but you view them as better than yourself. That these people are put in your life for a very specific reason. Jesus is saying, this is it. If you want to be great, you must become less. Isn't that such a weird thing for us in our culture today to really think, if we're trying to climb the corporate ladder, if we're trying to become the best at something, don't we have to tear people down, right? For our stock to go up was what we're being taught. Someone's stock has to go down. For us to become better at something, that means someone else has to be worse at it. Right? Think about what it takes to really be the best at something, whatever it is you want to be doing. The best student, even the best Christ follower, the best mom, none of that stuff is wrong. But whenever you start looking down your nose and feeling better about yourself, that is when it becomes sin. But how difficult is it to become the best at something, right? I'm thinking golf. I love to play golf. So sometimes, like, I think... I play way too much, and, like, and I'm still not even that good. But to be the best, to be like how Tiger Woods was in his prime, how much dedication, effort, time, thought, money, everything goes to it. It's a pursuit of perfectionism. And Christian, hear me. Let me, let me say this to you. We were never meant to pursue perfection because there was someone that is perfect for us in our place. In this pursuit of greatness of whatever it is, nothing robs you of joy more than the pursuit of perfectionism. Nothing will. I can tell you that from my own heart. Nothing will rob you more. Because there is a Savior who lived that perfect life for us that we will see here, going, just getting a little bit ahead, but he was perfect in that order so that way we don't have to be. All right, so if you want to go, go ahead and flip over to Philippians 2 really quick. Keep your thumb right there on Luke. We'll flip right back over. But I want you guys to see this with your own eyes. Because Jesus, when he redefines the win, that if you want to be great, you must be least, he is saying that you must be the greatest servant. You must be the greatest servant, and Jesus is the greatest servant. It's no longer about who is the greatest, because that mantle is already taken, Right? God is the greatest. He is the great I am. So the new win, the new focus for us, the new focus for the disciples is being the greatest servant. And Jesus demonstrates that for us here. So we're going to be picking up verse 3. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped. But he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. And being found in the image of man, he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the example that Jesus is sitting before us. That is the example that he has set before the disciples. But you might be asking at this point, how does, how does that get me glory? How does that make me 
truly great, right? The next verse right here, verse 9, is the answer. It says, for this reason also God highly exalted him. So when you humble yourself, it is not up for you to try to make yourself look better. God will exalt you. James 4.10 says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And he will lift you up. That is what we're talking about here as a church. What, what would it look like for us as a group, as a church made up of missional communities, if we really understood this concept, right? That we are truly to be great, that we are to not only serve those that are society, or even we would say that are less than us, but would view them as better than us. What would it look like if our mission as a church, as individual missional communities, as people were to go to these people that no one wants anything to do with? How would that change our lives? How would that radically change Dahlonega and Lumpkin County for the gospel that we would go to these people? What would it look like for our natural rhythm of life to change? That we not only know God, not only believe what he says, but we obey him and actually do these things and change our life. Unless you can think of ways that your life it would change and how your normal rhythm of life, the places you go, places you would eat, places you would spend your time, unless you know how that would change, we're not doing that, church, but it's okay because there's grace from Jesus. But this is what he is calling us to. to if, if we truly want to be the greatest, we must be the greatest servant. And I find it interesting that the disciples miss that. Right? Getting back to the text, the disciples missed it. And I said that at the beginning, it, if we're not careful, we'll miss it too. That it's not about, oh, that's just good, something Jesus said. Oh, Jesus gave this example of bringing up a little boy. But it, there's so much truth in that church that we can't miss that. Because we see here in verse 49 and 50 that the disciples miss it. Right? They're still in that pursuit of greatness there's still that root of pride in their heart. And something we'll see here, there's also a root of insecurity, which you could probably argue is a bit of pride as well. You see, verse 49, John answered and said, Master, we have someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. I love that last sentence. Like, I'm such a Star Wars geek that, like, if you've seen, like, episode three, I know the prequels are horrible, whatever, but, like, that is something he's like, only cis deal in absolute. If you're not for me, you're against me. With that really emotional battle with, okay, none of you guys are Star Wars fans. It's maybe one, okay, so there's two people, two Star Wars fans. But I love that sentence by Jesus because he's still showing compassion on the disciples that they missed it, right? Jesus gives this amazing illustration of what it looks like. Hey, I know you guys are trying to pursue to be great. That's a good thing. I want you to pursue that, but you're not the greatest. You want to be the greatest servant. Here's an example of how you do that, right? So are you guys, any of you thinking, why did, why did Jesus bring a child? Why did he bring a child up, right? Children aren't going to be able to sing your praises, I'm pretty sure that's why he brought him up, that children aren't going to be able to pay you back for all those things like you do for them. So there's nothing to gain by being good to a child. Also, on top of that, children, sometimes you do stuff for them, they don't even, whatever, you're supposed to. Like, you made me food, good, you're supposed to. Like, I think that's why Jesus brought up a child as an example. But you also see that the disciples just completely missed it. You catch that? Like, he brought up a child, and like, John doesn't even say anything at all about the child. Doesn't even mention, like, you know, why did you bring up a child, anything. 
And I find it interesting, too, because we know that John was struggling with pride, like we were saying in this argument. But he's also struggling with a bit of insecurity because he was on the mountaintop, and so he got to see Jesus transfigured. But there's also this insecurity in his heart because not only when he comes off the mountaintop, there's this some other guy that's casting out demons, and we see that the disciples themselves can't even do it. You see, one of the most dangerous things about pursuing to be the greatest at something is what in turn we do to each other. So James 4, 2 says it this way. It says, we're envious and we cannot obtain, so we quarrel. So a lot of the root of quarrel, these fightings that we have, is because we're envious of someone else. We're envious of maybe their stature, they're envious of their life, their money, their relationships, whatever they are, and we fight. And we quarrel amongst each other. And I think that's really interesting to see that root of insecurity of why that started to bubble up in the disciples and bubble up in John's heart. Because you see, whenever we are trying to make ourselves look better, the good news is the gospel outs us, right? If you were honest with yourself, you would know you cannot make yourself better. You can try all you want, you can try all the self-helps you want, but the truth is you know that you're going to fall short every single time. So in order to make yourself look better, what do we do? We try to make other people look worse. Because the bigger the gap there is, the more better we look. I don't even know this correct grammar. The better we look. So I, I think about this. It's, it's funny, when my wife and I were dating, um, maybe help, this will help us understand a bit. Uh, we used to play Monopoly, and I say used to because we are not allowed to play Monopoly anymore. Um, because, I mean, well, who came up with that sadistic game, if you really think about it? The premise of that game is to get as much money and as much power as you possibly can and to put the other person in as much financial ruin as you possibly can. Like, the whole goal is to make yourself much better and the other person worse. So my wife and I were playing Monopoly, uh, so we were just dating then. And it was funny, we'd only been dating for probably, what, a month, two months, something like that. Um, and I remember I landed on free parking and I hit bank, man, I'm not, I'm not gonna lie. Um, but then my wife on her next roll landed on one of my hotels on, on boardwalk, right? So it's like extra money coming in. She's like, I can't afford it. Would you just let me like have some grace? I'm not, like, I was like, maybe you can mortgage some of your other stuff, you know? I'm just saying, I'm ruthless. But the truth of the matter is, that's a funny illustration, but we, we do that with people in every single day life. In order to make ourselves look better, we have not only got to beat someone or be better than someone, but we got to make the gap huge, right? And if we're not careful, that trickles into our relationship with the Lord as well. That if we are tr pursuing this idea of becoming great, we have pride well up in our heart. And we have this insecurity well up in our heart. So some of you guys might be at this point kind of arguing with me in your head saying, okay, well, you're saying that there's this pride, there's this insecurity. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. Um, so if you have something to write with, I'm just going to give you one or two kind of questions uh, to ask yourself if you really think uh, that you might not be struggling with this. Uh, pride and insecurity. So pride is in your conversations with people, is it more about you or is the conversation more about the other person? Because if it's more about you, I mean, I get it sometimes, you want to feel like you're carrying a conversation but more often than not, if you're so worried about you and me, you become something like, I love the comedian Brian Reagan's calls them me monsters. Me, 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 I, 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 I. If that's about you, you're struggling with some pride, man, or lady. Um, 
another question that I would ask yourself if, you, if you're struggling with pride is, um, it's, it's really hard for me, this is really convicting that I'm thankful that Gabe and Matt have helped pull out of me, but how, how hard is it to admit, oh, and my wife, oh, glory, I almost missed that one. How hard is it to admit you're wrong? Like, my wife is not even making eye contact at this point. She knows, like, I, even last night, like, I, it's difficult for me to admit I'm wrong because it's, it's a duel. It's both pride and insecurity. I want to be right, and I'm also afraid of being wrong. So in those pursuits that we have in our life, whatever we're pursuing to be, whether it be a teacher, parent, whatever, let's just take parent, for example. You want to be the best parent you can, and you want to post all the stuff on social media so that way you look better than you really are. Or there's a root of insecurity behind that as well of maybe your parents weren't the best parents and you're afraid of becoming that. So we can see how this greatness sometimes is welling up in our heart and we miss out on the fact that we don't have to be great. We're not called to be great because there was someone great in our place. And that's Jesus. So as we continue in this story, it's interesting that this first little chunk uh, is sandwiched in between two really pivotal verses in Luke. It's the first time we're starting to see Jesus in his ministry start turning towards Jerusalem. So Ricky had one last week in verse 44, and if you notice in verse 51 this week, uh, these two statements, verse 44 back in Luke says, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. And the disciples miss that too. Like, we can give the disciples a hard time all we want, but truth of the matter, like we saw this this morning, we're not much different from the disciples. If we were there, we'd be making the same bonehead decisions. They missed that Jesus said that, and all they started caring about on the walk back, instead of talking about, what did Jesus mean about that? They start asking, which one of us is the best? And then verse 51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus' mind and purpose is set on reaching Jerusalem. The beautiful thing about this, this sermon series that we've been going through, we said it at the beginning, it was to learn more about who Jesus is. And one of the most beautiful things that we learned in Luke 7 was about Jesus' confidence. That his confidence led him to intentionality. That he was born with a purpose to go into some of the most desolate places, to the most broken places in the world, to go out in the ocean where he had no, no fear whatsoever of the storm going around because he knew he was sent by a purpose by his Father. And we learned that about Jesus. We learned about ourselves that we are sent with this purpose, that we also now are ambassadors in that same mission as Jesus is turning his face towards Jerusalem to go and lay his life down for these people, that we are called to do the same, that we're called to, to die to self and to take up our cross and to follow him in that journey as well. It's, it's a beautiful thing when we're starting to understand the bigger picture of what Luke is, is teaching Theophilus here in the Gospel of Luke. So I know for some of you type heirs, if you're anything like me, you're probably thinking, okay, what, what about the other, what, what's the next chunk of passage, the, the verse 52 through 54? Like, I would really encourage you to spend some time in that. I felt like that's what the Lord was asking me to ask you guys uh, to see what the Lord is teaching you through that. So if you're here with us or if you're listening on podcasts, whatever you're doing, um, I just encourage you guys to be reading along with us, right? To see um, as we come and gather on Sundays, just prepare your heart for what the Lord is trying to speak to us. Uh, so that way when we leave here as a church of missional communities, to be a family of servant missionaries all throughout Dahlonega and Lumpkin County, whatever context, 
that the Lord is speaking to you every single day because as the church we go, we're not just here for a Sunday, right? So it's kind of a funny story. Like we talked about it, things escalating so quickly. Again, the disciples miss it, right? We're seeing in those passages that the Samaritans didn't receive them, so they asked God that they could call down fire and consume them. Like, if these dudes can't even cast out one demon out of a boy, I don't think they're going to be able to cast fire from heaven and kill someone. But we see, again, that Jesus was sent with a very specific purpose in mind. He, was, he did not come to end lives and ruin lives, but he came so that way we can have life and life to the fullest. And that's the beauty of what we get to celebrate every single week as we gather as a body of believers. That we get to celebrate that God came and sent his son in flesh, wrapped himself in flesh to die for us. So the beauty of all of this is that, yes, we can still pursue greatness, but when we are to boast, like Paul says in, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians eleven thirty, is that we boast in Christ. So we're to pursue excellence, to do things with excellence, but all for the glory of God. And the, the beautiful part of all of this is that we don't have to be okay. It's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way, right? That the gospel outs us that in our pride that it's okay because there's grace because he comes and he will humble us for our own good. And when we are humbled, then he will exalt us. It's also okay that we have insecurity because he came and secured a future for us by laying down his life on the cross. That is the beauty of the gospel, that we don't have to be great because he is. So each week as a body of believers, we celebrate communion, which is a remembrance of that that we just celebrate that Christ came and prepared a way for us. That even though when we try to work so hard for it ourselves and we fall short, it's okay because when we take that bread that symbolizes his body that was broken and we dip it in that juice that symbolizes his blood that was poured out for us, we are reminded, okay, we have a mind reset each week. I don't have to do this on my own strength. It's not about me. It's about God. It's about his glory. It's about his kingdom. And it frees you up to go and live on mission every single day for the least of these in these community. So uh, we'll take communion here as a church. If you are still wrestling with some of these ideas of what it is to be a Christ follower, what does all this mean? I just ask that, uh, that you would stay seated as we celebrate this as a body of believers. This is something that's very important for us that we get to celebrate each week. Um, but as we sit and pray, just know communion's open and I uh, just pray that the Spirit would just speak to you as we continue in our celebration of this morning. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we can come into this room and be broken. Thank you that we can really celebrate who you are and what you've done for us. Um, we love and thank you for everything that not only that you've done, but just who you've made us as a people. You've poured out your blood for us, and your body was broken for us because you are great, not because we're great. And because you are great, that we no longer have to struggle every single day with this fake sense of we've got it put together. The good news of you being great is that we can rest 
knowing that we're in good company among a body of believers that are broken, that we can come to the table, that we can celebrate you as King Jesus. So thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that it brings. But thank you for your spirit. Thank you that you're here, that you choose to inhabit the praises of your people. That you come and you will minister as the purpose for which you sent. So Jesus, we're grateful. Uh, We're grateful that you love us. We're grateful that you care for us. And we're grateful that you are the greatest servant leader and you set the example for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So communion.